take your copy of God's Word, please, and um, be turning to Philippians chapter 1. I'll go ahead and save them the trouble. I, I came in a little early on that one part. and I get encouraged every Sunday after church as my boys tell me all the mistakes I made. So anyway, I thought I'd save them that mistake to tell me today after church. Came in too early on that bridge. I know. Philippians chapter 1. Isn't that great? We can learn together, love God together, sing together. And it's not so much about how perfectly we get it, it's about how our heart is. And I hope our hearts are right today. Came across this story. It's kind of a disturbing story, but I'll share it anyway. In 2003, Aaron Ralston was hiking in Utah, and a boulder fell and pinned his right arm. And he tried various ways to get his arm free, but to no avail. He was trapped. He was stuck. And on the sixth day of being there, imagine if you can, you're out there by yourself, your arm is pinned with a boulder, and it's six days in. On sixth day in, he came to a decision, and he decided what to do, and he cut off his right forearm with a dull multi-tool. Exhausted and dehydrated, he then repelled down a 60-foot cliff. He then hiked eight miles until he found a Dutch family who guided him to a rescue helicopter. And he eventually made it to the hospital and survived. Now, Aaron Ralston, he wrote an autobiography which he titled, most appropriately, between a rock and a hard place. You know, the desire to live is incredible. It's very powerful. People will do amazing things. They'll do drastic things to live, just like Aaron did, literally cutting off his arm that he might live. We want to live. But the question, beloved, is what are we living for? That's the question we don't often ask enough. What are we living for? You know, in our passage we're going to look at today, the Apostle Paul found himself between a rock and a hard place. He was torn between living and dying. He was torn between staying here and going on to heaven. Now, he was not confused about why he was living, and he was not confused about where he was going once he died, but he was torn. He was between a rock and a hard place. His philosophy of life, though, was clear. He was absolutely certain, and we find this philosophy of life in verse 21. And don't close your Bible up because we're going to look at more verses. But in verse 21, just coming to get started this morning, he says this about himself. He says, For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Now, I want you to think about that sentence. And if you had to write that sentence yourself and write it honestly, how would you fill in the blank before you? And don't answer out loud, but in your own heart. How would you finish that? If you had to honestly answer it, for to me to live is, what would come next? You're honest. You know, some people have to write, for me to live is money. For me to live is career. For me to live is education. For to me to live is possessions or fun or sexual pleasure or drugs or sports or whatever. For to me to live is this. This is where I'm spending my life. This is what I'm doing with my life. This is why I live. This is why I exist for this. And beloved, I just want to remind you of something very important today, though. What you put in the first part of that sentence affects what comes next. Because you remember Paul said, for me to live is Christ 
and to die is gain. But if you put money in that blank, for, for to me to live is money. To die is to leave it all behind. Some might say, well, for to me to live is career. And to die is to be replaced by somebody else. You see, beloved, those things we mentioned could be a part of our lives, and many of them should be a part of our lives. Money and career and all those things. But those things dare not be the passion of our lives or the purpose of our life. Paul said it, for me to live is Christ and die is gain. Paul lived a Christ-centered, gospel-focused life. His philosophy of life, his outlook on life, his whole life was Jesus Christ. Christ was his passion. Christ was his purpose. Christ was his all. He wrote elsewhere. I'll put these up on the screen for you. Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. He said this, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I love the next one. Uh, Colossians chapter 3, verse 4. When Christ, who is our life, when Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. He would have agreed with Ellicott, who wrote, My body will be the theater in which Christ's glory is displayed. Well, I want to go back and read some more of these verses. We, we pulled out verse 21, but I'm going to go put it back into the text today. And I want to go back and begin reading at verse 12 and read down through verse 26. Now, we're going to focus primarily in these two messages on verses 18 through 26, but I want to go back and set the stage. So follow along, if you will, and listen as I read Philippians 1, 12 through 26. Paul writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to the church at Philippi. says, But I want you to know, brethren, that the things which happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel, so that it has become evident to the whole palace guard and to all the rest that my chains are in Christ. And most of the brethren in the Lord, having become confident by my chains, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ even from envy and strife, and some also from goodwill. The former preach Christ from selfish ambition, not sincerely supposing to add affliction to my chains, but the latter out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. Verse 18, What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached. And in this I rejoice, yes, and will rejoice. For I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation and hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but with all boldness as always, so now also, Christ will be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. But if I live on in the flesh, this will mean fruit for my labor. Yet what I shall choose, I cannot tell, for I'm hard-pressed between the two. I'm between a rock and a hard place. I'm torn, having a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. Nevertheless, to remain in the flesh is more needful for you. And being confident of this, I know that I shall remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy of faith, that your rejoicing for me may be more abundant in Jesus Christ by my coming to you again. 
Now, I want to ask you a question this morning, and I want you to really think about it. Is Christ your life? Now, notice I didn't say is Christ part of your life. And I didn't ask is Christ in your life. I ask is Christ your life? In a sense, what we're going to do today and next Sunday, God willing, is we're going to take a test together. And I'm going to give you some of the marks that will appear in your life if you truly have Christ as your life. You could test yourself and I'll test myself. And there are three things I want to share from this passage that will be true about you if Christ is your life. Now, we only have time for the first one today, so don't worry. Only the first one today, then we'll come back next week and cover the second and third one. But let me just go ahead and give you the first one. You think about it. And it's this. If Christ is your life, you desire to magnify him. If Christ is your life, your desire is to magnify Jesus Christ. We notice right away in this passage in verse 19 a connecting word. It's the word for. For I know. And the word know there translated as the idea of certainty. He says, I know this is going to turn to my deliverance or my salvation in the King James. Now, two questions to tackle here. What is the this he's talking about? And also, what does he mean when he says deliverance and salvation? You've got to remember that the this there probably refers back to what he's already talked about in the previous verses. Remember, he's in prison in Rome. Probably by this time he's under house arrest. He's chained to a soldier 24-7. So think about that in your own mind. Put yourself in his sandals. Here you are, you're a prisoner, you're chained to a soldier under house arrest. Things were not pretty, they were not pleasant, they were not easy. But did you notice that Paul's focus here is not upon his problems, He's not moaning and groaning. He's not saying, Old Church of Philippi, write your congressman, tell him I'm being unjustly held. None of that. Instead, we find that his focus is upon the gospel. He was excited that the gospel was going forth. He was sharing the gospel. Others were sharing the gospel. And even some, out of spite for Paul, were even sharing the gospel just to spite him. But he says, you know what? I don't care. He says, as long as the gospel is going forth. And he's excited about it. And he assures the Philippians that his incarceration had actually helped to spread the gospel. And he's not moping in sorrow. He's rejoicing in his Savior. And then he says that this has happened to him shall shall turn to my deliverance or my salvation. And there's a lot of debate about what he meant by that. When he said deliverance or salvation, did he mean he was going to be free from prison? Did he mean he was going to be executed? Did he mean he was going to go on home to glory? Well, whatever he thought there, he was confident that God was at work and that he was going to be free from his present distress in some way, shape, or form as God directed. And so he's confident in Christ in these things. And Paul knew that he needed the prayer of the Philippians. He mentions that. He says in verse 19, For I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayer. He wanted the brethren to pray for him. He not only needed the prayer of the saints, it says, and the, supp- and the supply of the Spirit of Christ. He said, I need the Holy Spirit working in my life. And can I just remind you, beloved, we need the same thing. We need the prayers of our brothers and sisters in Christ. We need the working of the Holy Spirit in our life. And he says, listen, this is turning out for the furtherance of the gospel. Look at verse 20. 20 is very interesting. According to my earnest expectation and hope, That phrase, earnest expectation, is very interesting in the original. It has the idea of someone stretching out their net to see what's coming. In ancient times, it was used of a spectator who sat on the edge of his seat and and stretched his net to see the outcome of an athletic event. 
Now think about it. He's sitting in prison. He's chained to a soldier. And yet he says, I have earnest expectation. I'm stretching out my neck to see what is coming. And then he says, I have a hope. And the hope he mentions there is not the kind of hope we have. I hope it doesn't rain or I I hope it does rain. I I hope this will all end. I I hope we win the ball game. I hope whatever. It's not that. No, it's a biblical, it's a sure thing. It's an expectation. It's It's a response to the sure promises of God. I have an earnest expectation. I have a hope. I know God's at work. And then he says what? That in nothing I shall be ashamed. Now, Paul is in prison. Paul is chained. Paul is set to defend the gospel, defend the faith, verse 17. Paul will face trial, but he is not ashamed. Wearsby noted that it was possible that Paul would be found a traitor to Rome and be executed. Imagine that. You're found to be a traitor and you're sent to be executed. And yet he says, you know what? I'm not going to be ashamed. Why? How could he say that? Because he had nothing to be ashamed about. Mark this verse down. Mark this reference. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 6. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in this matter. Listen, if you're going to live a life for Christ, if you're going to stand for Christ, if you're going to do what's right, there'll be those who are going to mock you, find fault with you, ridicule you, exclude you, laugh at you, pass over you, some way, shape, or form persecute you. And the truth of the matter is, the Bible says if we live godly in Christ Jesus, we shall suffer persecution. But this verse tells us something very important. If you suffer as a Christian, don't be ashamed. Because that's what they want to do. They want to shame you and mock you. They want you to be ashamed. But he says, don't be ashamed when you stand for Christ. Don't be ashamed when you're being mocked for Christ. Don't be ashamed when you suffer for Christ, but instead glorify God in this matter. Know that God is in charge. Paul understood he might stand trial before Rome, but he knew that one day he would stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And all of us who are believers will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And by the way, the judgment seat of Christ is not about our salvation. Our salvation is forever settled at the foot of the cross when we come to faith, put our faith in Jesus Christ. But the judgment seat of Christ is where we as believers stand before the Lord and our lives are reviewed and we're put to the test and we receive rewards for those things that are done for Jesus Christ. And Paul did not want to be ashamed at the coming of Christ and at the judgment seat of Christ. He would instead magnify Christ in all of his boldness. Now look again at verse 20. According to my earnest expectation and hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but watch this, but with all boldness as always so now. Notice that phrase, as always so now. As always so now. In other words, Paul's response in this was not something new. This is not a one-time deal. It was not something he had never done before. He said, this is the way I live. This is the way I've lived. As always, so now, Christ will be magnified in my body. Christ will be magnified in my body. This has been the pattern of Paul's life since he met Christ. Now go back and look at what he endured. I mean, being you know, beaten with rods and shipwrecked and all these different things. His life was all about Christ. You know, one of the things that we have today is what I might would call convenient Christianity. So, well, preacher, what's convenient Christianity? Well, it's those who will be a Christian when it's convenient, when it's easy, when it's pleasant, when it's advantageous for them. You know, there are those who are Christians because it helps them. They want to be looked at as moral and upright and decent people and they want to align themselves with 
you know, Christianity and hopefully it will help them in various ways. But when something unpleasant comes, when something comes in their life that is costly, it's amazing how some of these Christians turn and hightail it out of there. Sad to say there are those who are Christians in name only, but they're not truly Christians. There are those who profess Christ but do not possess Christ. And the sad thing is that there are many, many people like this. Convenient Christianity. I will follow Christ as long as it's convenient. As long as it doesn't cost me anything. As long as it doesn't interrupt my plans or my schedule or my dreams or my hopes. Well, beloved, can I just tell you that is not Christianity. Because we give our lives to Jesus Christ. We give everything we have to Jesus Christ. He is Lord and Savior. Now that is not to say that those of us who know Christ, we always get it right. Because we don't. There are times where we too fail. We too can make the wrong decisions. But when those times come in our lives, and they do come, God deals with us. And our hearts are broken. And we turn back in repentance and confession to the Lord and are restored in a right fellowship with Him. But there are those who do not know Christ. Paul says that Christ is going to be magnified in my body. And he said it'll be magnified in my body by living or by dying. By living or by dying. What does it mean to magnify Christ? I mean, how can we, how could Paul, how could anybody magnify Christ? Magnify means to make larger, to make great, to exalt, to glorify. I mean, how can we or anybody else exalt or make larger Jesus Christ? Well, we know we cannot. He's already large, he's already great, he's already exalted. All we are merely doing is showing his greatness to others. Think about it. Somebody said it this way. Think about a telescope for a moment. Think about it. Now listen, think about a telescope for a moment. I mean, how long has it been since, don't answer, but I think some of you haven't been behind a telescope in years. But remember a telescope, you get it out on a starry night, get out in the yard, get the telescope set up or somebody else had a telescope, and you try to zoom it in and get it there. You see, a telescope magnifies things and brings them closer. Um, so you look at the stars. Well, the believer's body is to be a telescope that brings Jesus Christ close to people. To the average person, Christ is a misty figure of history who lived centuries ago. But as the unsaved watch us as believers go through crisis, they can see Christ magnified and brought so much closer. So we're to be like a telescope. But we're also to be like a microscope. Now that may bring back some memories that you're not so fond of might bring back that smell from the lab when you were in high school or whatever. But you know what a microscope does, right? It takes things that are tiny and makes them look big. And to the unbeliever, Jesus is not very big. In fact, a lot of everything else is more important than Jesus to the unbeliever. But as an unbeliever watches a Christian go through a crisis experience, he ought to be able to begin seeing just how big Jesus Christ really is as we magnify Christ like a telescope bringing him closer and like a microscope making him bigger to those who don't know him. You realize, beloved, that you're the only Bible a lot of people will ever read. You might be the only person around some people in your life that knows Jesus Christ. They don't know him. But hopefully they know you know him. As they watch you 
and your life. Hopefully, you're like a telescope bringing him closer and a microscope making him big. And notice he says here that Christ will be magnified in my body. You might think, well, does God really care about my body? I like what one fellow wrote. He said, he said our, bo- our physical bodies are valuable. Our bodies are up for grabs. Medical science has an interest in them. The athletic world appeals for young men and young women to give it their strong bodies. The drug world wants our bodies so they become addicted to their products and take over our lives. Style and model salons appeal for our bodies. And here's an encouraging note. Funeral homes advertise for our bodies. They want your body. Your body's valuable. Your body's a gift from God. And can I just say it this morning? God wants your body. Look at this verse, Romans 12. When I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your what? Your bodies. A living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. How about this one? I know years ago at the other church I pastored, we took this for our youth group. And we use this for kind of our theme verses. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20. What? Know you not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost which is in you, <clears throat> which you have of God, and you are not your own. For you are bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. If you're going to serve Jesus, or if you're going to serve anything, the only way to do that is with your body. I mean, you can't detach yourself from your body. Now, some of you wish you could this morning. You wish you could have left your body at home in bed and just brought your spirit today. And, you know, sometimes people tell me that. I'll be there in spirit. I've never seen anybody here in spirit. But there's a lot of people that are here in spirit on Sundays. But the literal thing is, if you're not here in your body, you're not here. But you're here. You got your body up. You awakened your body. You probably fed your body. You washed your body. You clothed your body. You drug your body in and you set your body down and you're sitting down your body right now. And if you're going to do anything, you have to do it in your body. If you're going to live for Christ, you've got to live for Christ in your body. If you're not going to live, you've got to live you know, in your body. And Paul says this, I'm going to magnify Christ in my body. But then here's what's interesting. He says, whether by life or by death. Hmm. We like the first part of that. We don't like the second part of that. I mean, how is it? He's going to magnify Christ with his death. Well, Paul has in mind here the moment of his death. He said, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Paul has in mind the moment of death. Now, the process of death can be very difficult. It can involve long-term pain, suffering, agony, all of that. He has in mind the moment of death, not the process of death. And you know, when a believer dies, what happens? The Bible says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Let me give you some verses. I'm going to give you the references and you can jot these down and listen to as I read them. Psalm 116, verse 15 says this. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. Think about that. When someone who knows Jesus dies, God says, that's precious in my sight. Because he's receiving the one that he loved to himself. And it's precious. Romans chapter 14, verse 8. Paul writing there pretty much says the same thing he says in this verse. 
um, Philippians 1.21. He says in Romans 14.8, For whether we live, we live unto the Lord. And whether we die, we die unto the Lord. Whether we live therefore or die, we are the Lord's. Kind of sounds a lot like for, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 8. We are confident, I say, and willing rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. Hmm. Then you probably know Psalm 23, 4. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. You see, beloved, death for Paul was not just an escape. Now, for some people, death is an escape, they think. One of the things that grieves my heart greatly is to hear about someone who takes their own life, who commits suicide. What often happens in that situation, beloved, is that person has reached the point of no hope. They think they have nothing to live for. No one's going to help them. Maybe sometimes no one loves them. And it grieves my heart anytime I hear of someone who takes that step and takes their life. And they think it's an escape. Paul didn't look at death as an escape. Now, yes, it is true that he was going to escape the suffering and the trials, and we'll see more of that later on. That's true. It is an escape in that sense. But more than that, notice he didn't say, for me to live is Christ and to die is an escape. He said, for to me to live is Christ and to die is what? Gain. Now, let's just stop for a moment. How can that be? Because he says, for me to live while I'm living is Christ. So if he has Christ in life, how could he say then for me to die as gain? How could he get anything more in dying than he had in living? Because he already has Christ. For to me to live as Christ and to die as gain, we would think we'd say lost, but no, why? Because to be absent in the body, to be present with the Lord. He would be with Christ. It would no longer be Christ there in us and Christ in us here and we're going through life. But we're face to face with Jesus Christ. And Paul says, listen, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. He says, I'm torn between the two, between a rock and a hard place. I'd love to go on to heaven, but I'll probably stay here and help you. His life was Jesus. His death was Jesus. He says it in Romans 14, 8, whether we live, we live unto the Lord. Whether we die, we die unto the Lord. Whether we live, therefore, or die, we are the Lord's. Now, that'll put perspective in your life like nothing else will. Now, let me mention something else in verse 21. It says, for to me to live is Christ. That's not true of everybody. Not everybody can say this. If you're going to be able to say, for to me to live is Christ, you have to first of all know Christ. You have to first of all belong to him. The Bible is very clear. All of us have sinned. All of us have fallen short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And you can come today in repentance and faith and... Receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. And I encourage you to do that. But a lot of you would say, I've already done that. And I say, well, hallelujah. Praise the Lord. But let me ask you, is Christ your life? You see, because we, we can very easily know Christ and go to heaven when we die and yet not be actively living for Christ and have Christ as our life. Why? Because we like to bring things in our lives to take the place of Christ. They're called idols. And we don't mean to. 
I don't think any child of God gets up and says, if they're in the right mind, I don't think anybody gets up and says, you know what, today I'm going to find an idol to worship. That's not how it happens. Many times the way it happens is we just, it just kind of subtly takes over. We begin to give our time and our attention and our devotion to something or someone other than Christ. And before we know it, we are bowing down at the altar of something besides Christ and someone besides Christ. And whenever something takes the place of Christ in our life, it is an idol. And maybe one of the hardest things that you'll have to do today is admit it. And say, you know what? This has become an idol in my life. And what has to happen, and it may be a good thing, by the way, a very good thing. In fact, I think a lot of times they are good things. Some of them. What has to happen is you have to come before the Lord and say, Father, this has become an idol. And you need to tear it down and put Christ back in its place. What would have to happen for you to be honestly able to say today, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain? I want you to bow your head with me and close your eyes, please. Nobody stirring around, nobody talking. Nobody preparing to go home. Two questions. Number one, do you know Christ today? Is He your Savior? Friend, He loves you. He gave His life for you. He shed His blood for you. He arose for you. Right where you are, right where you're seated, in this building or in the next building, you can turn from your sin and place your faith in Christ. You can express it in a simple prayer. God, I know I've messed up. I know I'm a sinner. I'm sorry. Please forgive me my sin. Come into my life. I receive Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. I trust Him alone. You can say a prayer just like that. If you mean it, the Bible says if you call upon Him, He'll save you. And that's the starting point today. But second question for those who say, that's settled in my life. Well, is Christ your life? I mean, is He your passion? Is He your purpose? Is He the reason you exist? I mean, yes, there's all kinds of things in our life. We're not talking about just spending all your time reading the Bible and praying. We're talking about living life, but the Christ is the center of your life. He's the first place in your life. And everything else is affected by that. I mean, are there some things that you've allowed to slip in are there idols in your life that need to be torn down and Christ put back in its place, His place, as King upon the throne of your heart and your life? I want to give you a moment before we sing in closing today to allow God the Holy Spirit just to speak to your heart, put His finger on anything that's wrong, and for you to make it right. Take a moment right where you are Talk to the Lord. Let Him talk to you. And let's get settled and be able to leave here today saying, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Father, thank You for loving us. Thank You that You don't leave us 
in our sad, pitiful condition. You save us through your Son. And then, Lord, even when we mess up after that, you don't leave us in our sad, pitiful condition. You convict us of our sin and bring us back to a right fellowship with you. Lord, I pray that we'll be honest with ourselves and honest with you today. That things will be made right in our lives for your glory. Be honored and praised in this place, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. This closing song is one I didn't know. And uh, a lady at a conference introduced it, I think, or maybe you sang it at a conference. My wife did, and she brought it. And um, said, I think we should sing this one. And we worked on it a little bit and kind of set it aside, and we got it back out. And uh, tell you what, um, it's become, it's battling for maybe the favorite song now. Because it talks about God's sovereignty over us and God being with us in the valleys and in the fire and in the struggles that we have. And even when the enemy means things for evil, he turns it for our good. You know, Paul here is in some trouble and yet he trusted in the sovereign God. And maybe you are as well today. hope that you'll be encouraged by the words. I know it's kind of new and you, you sing along as you can. But I want you to really let the words of this song sweep over you today and be blessed as we sing this song, Sovereign, over us. Let's stand together and sing.
lost in your heart? I couldn't get them out of my mind this past week. I'm just walking around, even what the enemy means for evil, you turn it for our good. That's Romans 8, 28 right there.